This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and to hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from the law offices of Pretoria Law in Tysons, Virginia. This is your host, Herb Cohen, with my co-host, Joe Applebaum, Potomac Companies, John Yetman, AEG, Association for Enterprise Growth, Brian Chandler, Pretoria Law, and Daniel Patterson, Brunch Digital. We have a great lineup of guests for you on our show today, including Matt Coos, founder and CEO of Cumulus, followed by Paul Gianfredo, who is the president and CEO of Mental Health America, Andy Gilman, president and CEO of Comcore Consulting Group, and Jennifer Bisegli, who is the CEO of Interus. And let's get to know Matt Coos, who's founder and CEO of Cumulus. What is Cumulus? What are you guys doing, Matt? Cumulus is a cybersecurity software company. We help enterprises uh, visualize their risk and reduce it. Hmm. How large or how small is this organization? Uh, we're about 25 people. And how did you get a job with this company? I uh, founded it about six and a half years ago. You founded the company. And where are you from originally? I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. How many brothers and sisters? Uh four total siblings I was the youngest of four so what did uh, what was going on with you being the youngest of four how'd that affect you what do you remember about that uh so i was five years younger than my you know, older brother mm-hmm. so a uh, pretty big gap there but um, i think at the end of the day it made me pretty competitive didn't you uh, tell us a story about going to his football game and how'd that make you feel when you went to your brother's football game who's five years older than you yeah so i think it was more than just the football game but just kind of being the last and the youngest uh my role was to follow folks around and kind of support their their games and uh-huh um, and what how'd you feel when you went to his football game what did you tell us earlier yeah i think i just i kind of wanted to be the one uh sort of going to my football game and and taking the family uh-huh uh, so what kind direction. of sports did you play uh quite a bit i played football baseball and wrestling uh-huh. what was your role in the football team uh pretty much quarterback throughout so what was the personality trait you brought to the quarterback role on your football team uh, mostly just an orchestrator of, of the team. What do so you mean just an orchestrator? What do you mean just the orchestrator? So, you know, understand the talents of the different, you know, positions and players and what everybody should be doing and helping them kind of make that happen. Wait a minute. So you had a vision of what everybody was supposed to be doing and you also had a sense of understanding what everybody's strengths are. Let me ask you a question. What's the, what's the parallel between that and being the founder and CEO of Cumulus? So a, a lot. I mean, that's, I think that's probably one of my strengths is just being able to sort of um, set the vision and then bring on the team to to get the job done and help help folks succeed. So you were showing that that vision and that ability to pull a team together back when you were a kid. Brian? Yes, you talked a little bit earlier about how um, you got a job when you were about 16, 15 years old. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was a member of a survey crew. Okay, and, and tell us about like what, what, what you did as part of a survey crew. So uh, it was during the summer, we'd go around uh, surveying land. Um, we'd be given you know, several jobs in the morning and Head out and go to different places around the around the area. And uh, yeah, what was your role in that survey crew? So I was the youngest, so I had the the little mirror uh, that I'd have to run around and kind of dig through bushes and get to the hard hard points on the plot and or on the lot and so they hold ga- it up. so they gave you that gig. Did you <laughs> keep that gig for a while? I did. Yeah. Was, yeah. Why? Uh, probably because I was just able to do it. Hard worker, kind of. Uh-huh. Do whatever they, they needed me to do, but uh-huh. So you were willing to do whatever needed to get done. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh so as opposed to goofing off or whatever, did you tell us something about um, you know, the game was to get as many to get as much done in a day as possible? What was that all about? Yeah, so I think the the incentive there was you're given ten jobs a day, you go out, you get them done quickly, uh you get off early. Um and so I was pretty incented to to go out and kind of get the work done. Get it done. Uh-huh. Daniel, what are you thinking? Yeah, so you, you mentioned uh, earlier in the green room that you actually went to West Point. Um, why, why did you choose West Point? I think primarily just because it was the biggest challenge that I, um, that I found for myself. So I got into a, a couple colleges with some scholarships and um, also got into West Point. I thought that would be uh, – it would push me pretty hard to, 
to take that. So don't don't you think West Point is is not really a place where you can kind of choose and get to do the the things that you want to do? I guess I know you were talking about that earlier. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it was more for me about the challenge, and it seems a little bit a um, little bit strange maybe to go into the military uh, with an entrepreneurial spirit. But I don't think it is at all. I think uh, taking on that challenge is what being an entrepreneur is all about. Yeah, um, and getting there, learning to how to work with a team, and and uh, you know, achieve the mission really was what I learned there. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you bring today? You know, as as you lead your your organization from those years at West Point. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is just um, that being a leader is about being a servant, really, and it's about uh, figuring out what it's going to take, the parts of the team you need, um, and how to incentivize them to get the job done. Yeah, um, that's and great. I, I love that to this day. That's kind of one of my favorite things to do. Is, is what one of your favorite things to do is what? Just uh, building a team with the right people. Um, you know getting them to be incented and motivated to accomplish the mission. Well, that's what you were doing when you were playing quarterback when you were in school. Exactly. And that's what you're doing for a living. And, and you were doing that in the military, in the West Point? Absolutely, yeah. It's a, all about mission and team and getting the job done. Boy, you had this common thread going through you, which is getting a vision and pulling a team around the vision. Right. Huh, how about that, John? Yeah, Matt, uh, aside from your mom and dad, who else inspired you? Um, I'd say the most recent was... was a. Uh, Godfrey Sullivan. Um, he's a former CEO of Splunk. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him back when I was a, an executive at DHS, and um, we're just blown away that uh, someone, you know, at his level, you know, running a, a very large company, taking them public, um, could be so so grounded and down to earth, and and really kind of meeting with his customers, finding out what he needs to do, taking that feedback back to the company. Um, just his whole demeanor and approach to business really blew me away. So his approach as well as what he actually had to offer? Absolutely. Yeah. The, Can you the talk te- about that? Yeah, I think the technology, um, it, it Splunk's a big data, you know, analytics company. And um, you know, this was probably eight, nine years ago. Um, back then it was all about relational databases. So seeing that technology of being able to bring in disparate data sources in real time and, and make use of it, um, is what you know inspired me to co- go launch the company because cyber defense was being done in a very different way than it than it can be done today. That's that's what Cumulus is really all so about. So, what's the difference between the way your industry was being conducted before you and the way you're conducting it? So, uh, the big thing I think is that um, it's near it's real time. So we're not um, getting static you know bits of data from different tools and trying to analyze those with mm-hmm. people. We're bringing it into a big data platform and then contextualizing it into the things that need to be monitored in real time. And this fellow that took the company public, he influenced you why and how? Uh, just to see someone at that level. I mean, very senior, took a, took a very large company public. I think it was the most, pub- most uh, successful, or one of the most successful um, Silicon Valley IPOs to this day. Um, just to see how he operated. I'm a pretty modest guy, and um, I think he was too. Mm-hmm. Uh, very down to earth, uh, related to people, very sociable. So you really, you really, pre- you really appreciated his style, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, you also appreciate what he accomplished. Exactly. So you really enjoy big challenges. I do. I definitely do. Well, we picked that up earlier in the interview where uh, it's your personality trait. It's interesting as the youngest of four that you're so competitive. <laughs> uh huh. So, what's the best part of your gig nowadays? What do you enjoy about your job? Uh, I think my favorite thing is just wearing multiple hats and, and really kind of keeping an eye on the on the vision. And then back to the teamwork, just helping people succeed is probably my biggest um, reward for being. Wait a minute. I thought the CEO yells at everybody and tells them what to do, otherwise they're fired. What are you talking <laughs> about helping them succeed? What are you talking about there? Yeah, I mean, I think um, my style, again, is just more collaborative and, and really finding people's strengths and putting them in spots that they can succeed in. Um, and I think that helps the company. It helps people uh, enjoy working there. Um, we're big. We're very big on the culture. So uh-huh. John, what that. else you think? Yeah, Matt, what does success look like to you? Um, I think from a, just from a tactical company perspective, it just it's really all about growing, um, solving our customers' challenges, which are um, pretty complicated in the cyber arena. Um, and then personally, it's a really about helping helping people succeed and, and feel good about what they're doing. And um, so, what's your favorite part of the day? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I, I like I like it all. I, I like keeping busy. I guess. Well, it's just like when he was a surveyor. It sounds like you know his nature is to keep cooking, to keep things moving, to keep things rocking. But doesn't it drive you crazy having to balance all these different things? Uh, it can get stressful at times. Um, mm-hmm. But it's again, I like the challenge. So it's uh, it's it's good when I have good people I can rely on mm-hmm. and, and pass some of that well, off. Wh- what did you learn in West Point that has anything to do with business? 
Uh, a lot. I mean, again, I think success is, is really dependent on the team, um, defining the mission and, and the goals. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, what your customers need to do and how you can help them. Mm -hmm. um, and Brian, so do you have a last question there? Well, just uh, more of an observation, but it sounds like everything you've done involves a team, all the way from being part of a surveying crew mm -hmm. and trying to work together to uh, finish the job efficiently yeah. to going to the Army to, um, to what you're doing now. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah, it's all about the team. Yeah. Well, what's the website address for this organization? Uh, we're at cumulos.com. How do you spell that? Q-M-U-L-O-S. Let me have that one more time. Q-M-U-L-O-S. Q-M-U-L-O-S dot uh, com. Correct. And it's pronounced? Cumulus. Cumulus. We've been speaking with Matt Coos, founder and CEO of Cumulus, here on Executive Leaders Radio. Don't forget to visit our website. It's executiveleadersradio.com to learn more about our executive leaders. It's executiveleadersradio.com, and we'll be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. Want help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. And your name is? Jeff Lawson. And Jeff, what organization are you with? I'm with Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And wh what do you guys do? What kind of stuff are you doing that's special? Well, we manage uh, conference centers and hotels, and we're currently managing the National Conference Center in Leesburg, Virginia. National Conference Center. How large or how small is this organization? Um, the conference center itself is 900 rooms in size, 350,000 square feet of meeting space, dining facilities for 850, uh, exercise facility all set on 61 acres of land. Wow, this is a large organization, isn't it? It is, very large. Uh-huh, and what's your role in the organization? I'm the general manager, and I have oversight of the uh, property and all the hospitality services that occur. Well, what's the general manager supposed to do with this large facility? Make sure I have a, make sure eight executive community members and a, and a full uh, staff of 210 do their daily jobs. So how many folks do you have running through your halls on a weekly basis or daily basis or annual basis? What's that look like? Well, on a weekly basis on a full house, we'll have uh, 900 per night, um, seven nights, uh, 6,300, which translates to about 20,000 meals a week. Wow. And uh, your job, are you working nine to five or do you end up having to work evenings and early mornings and weekends and stuff like that? No, I'd say I'm always on duty. Uh-huh. Wh what do you enjoy about your job? Meeting people, working with some of the finest hospitality people in Virginia, which is my team, and meeting our clients because they're wonderful. So you're helping your clients plan their events? Well, we help plan. Uh, they are there for some form of education that goes on at one end of our business, and at the other end of our business, they're there for social catering events, uh, weddings and such. So you're, you're, well, you're running a 24 by 7 facility, aren't you? We are. Uh-huh. What's the website address of this organization? Conferencecenter.com. Let me have that again. Conferencecenter.com. And your name again is? Jeff Lawson. And the name of the organization? Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And this has been your Business Spotlight. We're back here listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Rick We'd like to introduce Paul Jonfredo, who's the president and CEO of Mental Health America. Paul, what is Mental Health America? What are you guys doing? Mental Health America is the nation's longest-standing mental health advocacy organization at 110 years old. We have 200 affiliates across the country, uh, and we have a number of programs, particularly for young people. Wow. And where are you from originally? I'm originally from Middletown, Connecticut. And how many brothers and sisters, and where are you in the pecking order? Two brothers, one sister, second oldest. So you're the second of four, and um, how did you get involved with this whole mental health thing? Well, when I was first elected to the state legislature back in 1978, I was assigned health to do because nobody else wanted to do it. So did you tell us you were the youngest state legislator in Connecticut, in Connecticut or something like that? I was one of the youngest at that time. Uh huh. And so they got to me last in asking me what I wanted to do. And when I told them, they said everybody else wants to do that, so you have to do health because nobody else wants that. 
So you got involved with the whole world of mental health early in your career, and why did you stick with it? What, what was the what was the what, why why mental health? Why did you stick with this? Well, as it turns out, uh, half of us will have a mental health problem in the course of our lifetimes. And in my case, about five years later, my son Tim came along, and when he was five years old, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So I not only learned on the job as a policymaker, I learned on the job as a parent in dealing with mental health conditions. Wow. Wow. So you were serving in a role as a state legislator, and you also were experiencing this personally one-on-one. Yes, some of the programs I funded later served my son. So you you had firsthand experience. You knew exactly what the market needed. When I got to Mental Health America, I had been working on this for already 30 years, so I had some idea about what the market needs. Uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, Brian? Yes, let's talk a little bit about your youth, if we could flash back here um, a bit. Uh, in high school, in school when you were a kid, what kind of activities were you involved in? Well, in high school, I did debating, and I did the math club. Uh, As a kid, I played the accordion. I continued to do that. I liked to run. I continued to do that. And what type of roles did you take in these various organizations that you were involved in? Well, I ended up as president of the debate club. I ended up as president of the math club. Um, I was a pretty good accordion player, decent runner, uh, just because I tried to be the best I could. So you're always continuously practicing, and, uh, and perfection seemed a sort of ephemeral to you, I guess. I yeah, guess. perfection did. always was far beyond what I could do. So I kept practicing toward it, never got there. <laughs> um, in your, uh, you, you talked earlier um, before the show about how you, um, at one point in time, you thought about beca- being a lawyer as a kid. Yeah, when I was a young kid, I thought maybe I'd want to be a lawyer. Decided not to. Yeah, I ended up in politics because... I thought it would be more interesting to write the laws than have to interpret and argue them. Okay. And uh, at what point in time did you make that, um, that discovery about yourself? Really when I was a late teenager. I decided to get active in politics very early, and I decided not to be a lawyer uh, just about that same time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Daniel? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about you know, your, your parents, especially your mother. Um, tell me a little bit about her growing up and, and kind of the effect that she had on you. My mother was initially a stay-at-home mom, but she was also a joiner. She volunteered for pretty much anything she could and generally became a leader in those organizations. She was very outgoing and uh, very friendly, and I learned a lot that way from her. What do you think you bring every day to work from your mom growing up? Well, I, I think and I hope I bring the same kind of energy to all of the work that I've done, all the activity that I've done that my mother did. Uh, she always uh, pretty much looked for the bright side of things and always pretty much worked to do her bit to get people there. That's, that's a good thing to bring, for sure. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, was the running. So running is kind of an interesting choice um, for a sport. Uh, I think a lot of kids, they run for you know, conditioning for other sports. But why did you pick running specifically as, as something that you've kept with you, you know, all these years? Yeah, it was something I could do. I, I knew it could be a lifelong activity when I started it. Uh, and I was looking for something that would be lifelong. And I could do it by myself. I didn't need other people to do it with, although I could run races to get that. So even as a teenager, you were thinking about something that would, would serve you well you know, down the road. It would help me be the best person that I could become. And pretty much everything I've done, I've tried to be the best that I could be in hopes of inspiring others around me to be the best that they can be. Didn't you mention also that you've been playing accordion for many years and you play the accordion every day? I was playing the accordion every single day during my, my youth. I don't play it every day now, but I've played it for 60 years, and, uh, and I still play it. I'm okay now, but I was really good uh, when I was young. When you, when you were playing it, why did you play it so frequently? I used to love it. I used to love the music. I used to love the endorphins that I got from it. I used to love getting better and better. I used to love the speed. And I used to love the complexity of that particular instrument that could play a lot of different things at the same time, melodies, counter melodies, uh, chording, all of that stuff together. Most instruments can't do that. So you like you really enjoy challenging yourself. It's the, it's the same thing with running as well as with the accordion. It's like, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's no ceiling in terms of how you want to keep bettering yourself. Am I correct about that? Yeah, and I I wish there were a ceiling. I wish I could achieve that. But I was a philosophy major in school, so I I know my place in the world. How how does the philosophy major lend itself to your being the president and CEO of Mental Health America? Well, philosophy prepares you for nothing and everything in life. And so from my perspective, uh, it helped me learn to think. It helped me learn to think critically. 
uh, and it helped me to understand that there are limits to what we can accomplish by ourselves and that we all exist in a broader world, a broader community. John? You are the author of a book called Losing Tim. Tim is your son. Can you talk about the book and what Tim has taught you? Yeah, Tim is now in his mid-30s, so he has lived with schizophrenia for 30 years since he was five years old. I wrote a book about that and uh, talked about the stress that the system put us under. But for Tim, the enormous patience, resilience, uh, humor, and other things that he's brought to uh, his loving relationship with me. And we still are in touch. So is part of your mission to help fix the system? Absolutely. There are a lot of people like Tim. And when people say, what can I do to help Tim? They're thinking of the 34-year-old Tim that they want to bring off the streets of San Francisco. And what I'm thinking of are the five-year-olds, because half of mental illnesses emerge by the age of 14. These are diseases of childhood. I'm thinking about the five-year-olds we need to be helping that we didn't help back when I was in the state legislature in the 80s. You were talking about stage four and that the system doesn't really get involved with people until that level. Yeah, mental illnesses are the only chronic diseases in America. This is a matter of public policy. We wait till stage four to treat. At Mental Health America, we say simply we have to act before stage four. And that's what we practice at that organization. And that's what we think is going to make a difference to change trajectories of lives like Tim's. Is it working? Is it working? I think so. 3,000 people a day come to our website to take a mental health screen. Four million people have taken those screens. There are a lot of people looking for help. There are a lot of people who can be helped. Uh, we just have to be willing to talk about mental health. We have to be willing to act before stage four, and we have to do pretty much what Mental Health America has been trying to do for the last 110 years. Fabulous initiative. Yeah, so, so your son has helped you appreciate uh, some things in the system that needed to get tuned up, and now you're in the midst of tuning up the system. That's exactly right. I've experienced it from both sides. Uh-huh. And you say that the system put a lot of stress on you guys? What are you talking about there? Well, when a child develops a mental health problem, usually it's not recognized as one until he misbehaves in school or she misbehaves in school, and then they start suspending and expelling. Then they become adults, and they start getting fired from jobs and lose their housing. That's the system putting stress on people and on families, and every family uh, experiences this who experiences mental health conditions in the family. As opposed to? as opposed to what we should be doing, which is not applying this danger to self or other standard as a trigger to treatment as a matter of public policy, as opposed to simply screening everybody, like we screen for blood pressure, like we screen for vision for kids, for mental health all the time, and then providing whatever services and interventions we need as we begin to have our mental health problems emerge. Ah, so as opposed to not identifying the issue early on and sweeping it under the rug and then all of a sudden it blows up on you one way or another, you're talking about really trying to get to know everybody and understanding if somebody needs help and what kind of help might be most appropriate? That makes sense because that's what we do with every other condition. That's what we do with every other disease. That's pretty much what we do with um, every other thing that we face except these mental health issues, what's which the, seem, we seem to fear. What's the website address of Mental Health America? MentalHealthAmerica.net. Let me have that one more time. MentalHealthAmerica.net. We've been speaking with Paul Gianfrido, who's the president and CEO of Mental Health America here on Executive Leaders Radio. Don't forget to visit our website, ExecutiveLeadersRadio.com. Learn more about our executive leaders. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. One help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. And your name is? Ramon Parker. And Ramon, the name of the organization? Loudon Free Clinic. 
And you were telling me there's some something special about the Loudon Free Clinic where every dollar that goes in does something else. What was that all about? Yeah, it does something magical. So for every dollar that's donated to our clinic, we can deliver $8 worth of care. And what kind of clinic is this? Who are, you, who are you helping out? What kind of stuff do you guys do? So we're helping out those who are 18 to 64 who are uninsured and low income, 200% or below the federal poverty level. And give me this thing about the math again. Give me how that works. So essentially, I have a, a staff of 12 individuals and 128 volunteers. So with that kind of payer mix, I'm able to deliver, you know, anywhere from $8 uh, in care for our patients. Because you've been able to enroll the support of so many volunteers, you're actually keeping the cost of health care down, and therefore multiplying the dollars. And making one of, it, one of the best business investments for private corporations who want to invest. And didn't, ah, interesting. So private businesses and individuals can get involved. And didn't you Absolutely. tell me you had a couple of health care challenges yourself? What were they? I have. I've had four open heart surgeries, and mm -hmm. it helps me to understand what patients need. What are you talking about? What do you mean? So the idea of having been on the table or being a patient, I'm able to take a patient focus in how we deliver care differently than most people would. What did you, what did you learn from those experiences personally? What do you appreciate that most of us don't? I appreciate consistency. Um, I think that a, a staff at the hospital, nurses, providers, mm -hmm. parents, mm -hmm. family, all those people consistently being around me and consistently offering me hope. Uh, I'm so full of it that I have to offer that to the patients and to the staff when I'm working with them. What's the website address for the Loudon Free Clinic? Loudonfreeclinic.org. Let me have that one more time. L-O-U-D-O-U-N freeclinic.org. We've been speaking with your name again? Ramon Parker. And this has been your business spotlight. Thank you. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. And Ray, what organization are you with? Life Sciences Conference Group. And what is Life Sciences Conference Group? What do you folks do? We produce annual conferences and events for medical technology, life science, pharmaceutical companies. Uh-huh. So if I go to an event, you're the folks that are working behind the scenes to make it happen? That's correct. We're the ones that make sure the food's on the table, the seats are there, soundstage and lights are there, your registration process works. And, and what kind of events are these? Are these just in the life science industry? Strictly in the life science industry. Why, why do you focus on the life science industry? Uh, we found that the best way to produce a high-quality event is to really know your customer. So we don't believe in numbers. It's names. We get to know each company. We find out what their actual mission and goals are, and we find the best way to deliver the value to them. And are you doing this nationally or regionally? We do it nationally. We continue to look for international opportunities, but it's primarily here in North America. And how old is this company? Uh, the company has just finished its 10th year. And how long have you been with the company? I founded the company 10 years ago. What gave you the idea to start this company? I used to work for a big corporation, and I produced the annual event for us. And when I decided to leave, they said, thank you for giving us $150 million worth of a business, and we'll see you later. And mm -hmm. next time I decided I would keep some ownership and do it myself. Ah, so you've been, building, you've been building this ever since. What do you like about your job? I like how different it is because we mix policy, we mix business. I might be putting one CEO together with a politician. I might be putting another CEO together with an investor. Mm -hmm. And I might be putting the next person together with their next employee. How interesting. Well, what's the website address for this organization? MedTechConference.org. Let me have that one more time. MedTechConference.org. And the name of the organization, again, is? A Life Sciences Conference Group. Life Sciences Conference Group. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. Ray Briscuso. We've been talking to Ray Briscuso, CEO and managing partner of Life Sciences Conference Group here on Executive Leaders Radio. This has been your business spotlight. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Andy Gilman, President and CEO of Comcore Consulting Group. Andy, what is Comcore Consulting Group? What are you guys doing? Comcore helps businesses and organizations who have to deal with the news media and interviews, make business presentations, and then, unfortunately, respond after a crisis has occurred. How large or how small is this organization? We're a core group of 10, and we have consultants all around the country. Uh -huh. Where are you from originally? I grew up on Long Island in a town called Rockville Center. How many brothers and sisters? I was the youngest of three, an older sister and a brother. You're the youngest of three, and uh, how young were you when you started making money? Probably about nine or ten when I got my first paper route. It might have been 11, but mm -hmm. um, came home after school, rolled up the newspapers, had a route from about two or three blocks, and 
uh, Monday through Saturday, I had to drop the newspapers or throw them on the front porch. And you also got that evolved into something called snow blowing or something like that? Well, in the wintertime, that's when the winters were cold. My oh. brother and I bought a snow blower, and we had the Gilman Brothers snow blowing. We even went to shop class and printed up the little advertisements, dropped them off at the front door, and saying, when it snows, we want to plow your sidewalk and your driveway. Uh huh. Uh, what, what did you learn from delivering newspapers and the snowblowing business that has anything to do with building this organization called Comcore Consulting Group? At the end of the day, it's all about customer service. I mean, anybody can drop off a newspaper on the front porch. It's the day you have to go around and collect the money, knock on the door, smile, and hopefully you get a slightly bigger tip than the week before. Uh-huh. And in the business world, it's all about delivering the service, but actually having the customer relationship so they come back. Ah, so one of the reasons, you, how long have you been in your business now? Only 34 years. So you've been in business 34 years and one of the reasons, do you have repeat customers? About 90% of our business is from customers who come back or somebody moves to another company and they bring us along. So it's all about the customer relationships, delivering the newspapers and getting the tip. That's right. And oh. I still remember the one house where instead of the five cent tip, we got the 10 cent tip. My what, favorite customer. Well, and what did that, do you remember that? What did that teach you? It really just tells you do your job, make sure you're on time, make sure you make up for a mistake. In fact, when the paper got wet, figure out how to recover from that. And people liked you when you did that. All right, just wanted to make sure I understood. Brian? Yeah, we talked in uh, the green room a little about your, your father's job. He was sort of your quintessential company man in a way, it seemed. like he was, Wasn't he a buyer for, um, for a company downtown in, in New York? He was a buyer for a department store in the New York area, World War II veteran. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things that I learned was that he had to figure out what was the fashion that was going to be working this season or the next season. So in a certain way, what I learned was how to stay fresh and on top of what the trends were. Okay, and you and you learned that from watching how your father sort of forecast what the next season's uh, clothing options are going to be. And it was also about discipline. You had to put in how many pair of pants did I need to put in this store, how many shirts did I need to put in that store, and you had to be methodical, yes, creative, but if you couldn't be methodical, you wouldn't have the goods in the stores. And you would watch him uh, engage with these spreadsheets, you said, uh, where he was making these decisions about uh, what he was going to buy. Yeah, he also learned a little bit about sacrifice because in the holiday season, he would often be working late. He wouldn't be home. And so we had to make up special times to have holidays because of his work schedule. Okay. Well, your, your father, though, went, you went a different route than your father, right? At the end of the day, you're, you, you sort of went out on your own. You felt a drive to go out on your own and be uh, entrepreneurial. Can you uh, talk a little bit about why you know you you came you saw the advantages of your uh, of a position like your father's, but you decided to go out and perhaps a more risky way of 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 trying to make your own way in business? Well, at the risk of dating myself, I will say I'm also a child of the late '60s, early '70s. So we were rebelling against almost everything. So I probably wanted to do something different than that kind of job. But I also want to bring up that, again, like my current family, my wife and I both are equal partners. You know, my mom was an elementary school teacher, and I learned a lot about multitasking. I then became a high school teacher at one point, probably somewhat inspired by her. So I think it was the two parents that made the, uh, the what, ultimate what, impact. What, what grade did your mother teach? She was a third grade teacher. A third grade teacher. Did you have your mother as a teacher? Only once as a substitute. Uh -huh. And I still remember Tommy Suskin calling her Phyllis because that was the days when you called parents by their first name when, when you were kidding around. And she said, call me Mrs. Gilman. So how, how, how did you feel having your mom as a substitute teacher with all your friends in the class? I was on my best behavior. Uh, so as opposed to taking advantage of the fact and goofing off, you knew not to mess around with your mom? Uh, that would be a smart move in my family then, and my kids learned that in my current family. Uh -huh. Don't mess around with mom. So mom was the third grade teacher. So what kind of work habits did you learn from mom? You probably had to get your lessons done early. Mm -hmm. You probably had to plan. Mm -hmm. And you probably needed to be able to do, besides your day job, what was your other job, which in that case might have been shopping. And in uh -huh. my case, it's, okay, you do your job today, and you start thinking about what's coming next. So you learned good work habits. How about your writing skills? You think, you think mom may have helped? Uh, that was Mrs. Nardino. She oh. was my ninth grade grammar teacher. And to this day, I always invoke Mrs. Nardino once or twice because she taught me the proper grammar. And again, it 
language evolves, but I learned a lot from her. Uh-huh. Dan? Yeah, so uh, I think it's interesting. Your, your mom was an elementary school teacher, and you actually became a, a high school teacher at one point and also a journalist. So can you talk a little bit about why you went those routes and what skills those jobs gave you? I think in general, I've always liked to be my own boss. So it was the newspaper route. You delivered the newspapers. High school teacher, you're basically in charge of your own classroom for that period of time. As a journalist, you're your own boss. Yes, you have an editor, but you learn how to craft a story. Then the next day, you have to sell the next story. In a certain way, our business at Comcore, it's a transaction business. We're as good as the last assignment we had. So there's a common thread in there. Hmm. Interesting. John. So moving from high school to college, you studied history. So what do you take from history that you use today, or why was that important? There's an old saying, those that don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. And I think learning about, in this case, American history, how the country was formed, I studied a lot about the Depression and lessons from that, you know, kind of helped me a little bit when we went through the Great Recession starting in 2008. So it's, it's a good base. Uh, so what kind of sport did you play when you were a kid? I tried to play everything. I became a really good soccer player, but, you know, as I say, the best lesson came on the uh, Little League field. Why? What happened? So there was a day I was pitching. We were up 6 nothing. We get to the sixth inning. The other team starts coming back, and pretty soon it's 6-6, six, six, and I think it became 7-6. And I might have been, been close to crying, and the manager comes out and says, too bad. You're staying in the game. You got to get through this inning, and I still remember that lesson today about you got to stick to it. So the lesson was what? Kind of work through the adversity, and this was a game. It wasn't life, but again, in in life, you have to. Not everything comes easy your way. You have to figure out, solve the problem, move on to the next step. Maybe that's where the crisis consulting business came from. Uh, yeah, it's an offshoot of actually my journalism career and also. Uh, my legal background in that crises define whether it's a nonprofit, a candy store, or a big business. You can be going along smoothly, but if you can't respond to adversity, you're not going to ultimately survive. So you're telling me that when you're running a business, sometimes adversity happens and sometimes it gets in the news, and your role is to help the CEO move through that? Yeah, you have to come in as the outside expert advise, see where you are, see where you want to be, make the changes that are appropriate. And at the end of the day, for most organizations, it's about your reputation, what your customers think about. Everybody makes a mistake one time. It's how you recover from the mistake, the mistake that makes a difference. John? Hey, Andy, so you advised uh, Johnson & Johnson during the Tylenol crisis. So how do you advise a person or a company when they hit rock bottom? Well. First of all, the Tylenol crisis was solved by Johnson & Johnson as a company who had the right culture, the right team, and the right CEO at the time, Jim Burke. Uh, nowadays, it's, you have to start with, in any business, any organization, know that adversity is going to hit, so have a crisis plan, not just intuitively, but write it down. Then, obviously, drill against the plan, much like the fire department will drill to make sure they know how to sub uh, help somebody in a fire or in an accident. and then. Anytime you have a mistake, go back and look and see what you need to correct. Huh. One, one last question. Uh, Jim Cramer, you were his teacher, I guess, at one point, and uh, you had to tell him to tone it down. What was that all about? Nobody ever tells Jim Cramer to tone it down. <laughs> but when he was in high school, he had a little bit more ability to say, hey, J Jim, tone it down just a little bit. But he was more interesting, wilder, zanier than any other student I had. You didn't know what he'd become. Obviously, we see him on uh, TV all the time. He's become very successful. Uh, we kind of like just nudged him what's along. The, he uh, probably had his own What's path. the website address for Comcore Consulting Group? ComcoreConsulting.com. Two M's in Comcore. ComcoreConsulting.com. We'll see you Andy Gilman, president and CEO of Comcore Consulting Group. We'll be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. And your name is? Theodore Kiviat. And Theodore, what, uh, what organization are you with? Uh, Longman and Van Grack. And what kind of stuff do you guys do? What's Longman and Van Grack all about? We are a small Bethesda, Maryland law firm. We do commercial litigation, personal litigation, trust and estates, and tax work. Hmm, interesting. Um, what do you like about your job? I got to help people. What do you mean you got to help people? What, I, 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 what do you mean? Well, as an advocate for them in the commercial or civil litigation arena, mm -hmm. uh, I get to help them through 
uh, problems and solve problems. Uh, so you like jumping in and really helping somebody with whether it's litigation or what kind of stuff do you help people with? Can we have that again? Well, uh, I, I we had a trial several months ago where mm-hmm. a company was being uh, sued by mm-hmm. another company, mm-hmm. and they thought the company was was on the verge. It was a betcher. So, so give me the different categories of what you would help. You would help people with what kind of stuff? Litigation. What litigation. What else? A trust in estates. Trust the in estates. Pro- probate work. Probate work. Life huh? planning. Uh-huh. And what else? Uh, personal injury, did you mention as well? Uh, well, we don't do personal injury, uh-huh. but we do, you know, commercials. Uh, commercial. When businesses are faced with commercial uh, litigation against them. Uh-huh. So you really get involved with, with deep, complex kinds of stuff that you yes. want to help. And you enjoy that. I do because I, I've always wanted to be an advocate for for other people, and it uh, permits me the opportunity to advocate their positions and solve their problems. So you really get to know your clients. You really get to know what's going on, so that you really advocate for them, so that you really can fight for them. Absolutely, we have to do that because we can't represent them properly unless well, we know their business excellent. and can fight for them. What's the website address of this organization? It is lvglawfirm.com. Let me have that one more time. lvglawfirm.com. And your name again is? Theodore Kivia. Name of the organization? Longman and Van Grat. And this has been your Business Spotlight. One help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, All the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on this show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you've ser- you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business or truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, We may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com to hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last 10 years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Pellin, and we'd like to introduce Jennifer Basegli, who is the CEO of an organization known as Interos. What is Interos? What are you guys doing? Interos the world leader for supply chain assurance, using artificial intelligence to show our customers how the ripple effect of seemingly isolated incidents around the world positively and negatively affect their suppliers and their customers. And uh, how large or how small is this team? We're small. We're under $10 million right now. Uh-huh. And where'd the venture capital come from to get this thing going? Kleiner Perkins. And when did you get the commitment for that? How recently did this venture capital get committed? In January this year. Uh-huh. Where are you from originally? South Jersey. South Jersey. How many brothers and sisters? I had one younger sister. One younger sister. And uh, tell us about what mom and dad did for a living. My mom was an executive assistant at Campbell Soup for 33 years, and my father ran his own insurance brokerage in South Philly. Uh-huh. Okay. Brian. Yeah, you grew up in a small town in uh, southern New Jersey, and uh, you mentioned that you were interested and eventually ended up going to West Virginia uh, University, WVU. You want to tell us a little bit about that and why you chose to go to school there? I think I chose it because it was so big. Interestingly enough, 51% of my freshman class actually came from New Jersey, so I think we all wanted out of the state. <laughs> and what, what, what about it being big really attracted you? I could get point? lost. 
so South Jersey, I came from a very small town and a very constrained just area. And so the idea of being able to be in something big, but I could still get lost so I could grow into it was very interesting. And now you're involved in a sort of more of a global type of uh, environment when it comes to your, your, your business. And so, I mean, is this just you're, you're driven by sort of broadening your horizons? I don't like constraints. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, while at WVU, you um, became attracted to studying business. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about why you decided to take that path? I stumbled into it a little bit because nothing else really interested me. But when I think about business and the way I think, it's very linear. It's very black and white. And you just keep going, going, going and breaking through. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the part of, of business that you, you enjoyed. I do enjoy. Mm-hmm. Daniel? Yeah, so where do you think this kind of concept of, of breaking through came from? I think, again, I came from a very, very small town, literally the town of Sicklerville, that was named after Mr. Sickler, who lived there until he passed away. And they kept his name on the town even through today. And I think by going to a larger school and the business that I'm in right now, it was just continuing to break through barriers. Sure. And you mentioned that you grew up Roman Catholic. We did. What kind of effect did that have on you as a kid, but also as you were growing up and, and moving off to college? There was a lot of church. There was a lot of church. There was a lot of schooling. And I think, again, very regimented and very small. And when I went to college, just left all that behind. So that was that was another constraint sort of on you that you really wanted to kind of break through and be able to do, you know, your own thing and kind of create your own path through life. Absolutely. It wasn't a negative. Right. It was a great place to grow up. It was it's a great religion. It was just time for me to go. John. So you're, you were part of a group called Women Impacting Public Policy. What was your role there, and why did you join that? I'm actually still part of the group. I was chairman of the board for six years. I was actually their first chairman of the board. It's an organization that's nationwide representing five million women entrepreneurs and focused on federal advocacy. And it was really important to be part of a very large network and really help each other get better and stronger and grow businesses. So you talked about an international group that you're part of now? Right. So I'm actually, I got elected um, to represent the United States as part of the Women's 20 or the W20, which is a committee of the G20. Fantastic. What are you doing there? So again, I'm I'm focused on... What does the group do? Yep. So it's very focused on a lot of different women's rights issues. It started in Turkey, then it went to Germany. Um, This year it was in Argentina, it was in China, and excuse me, this year it was in Japan. And um, the whole idea is women's empowerment. And again, I focused on the entrepreneurial pillar. When you were, uh, how, old, how young were you, or how old were you when you got your first job, and what was it, and what were you hired to do there? So my first job out of college was um, at Nine West Shoes, when Nine West was still around at the distribution center. I was hired for, it was a blind ad, and I was hired for customer uh, service. You were hired to do customer service. How long did you last in that job? And how long did you last at the company? And what kind of stuff did you do while you were at the company? Yeah, so I lasted in the job all of three months. I was at the company for four years. And literally, the executive there, Ron Dente, saw something in me. And he didn't fire me, but he moved me around to literally every single department. So everything from running the warehouse to literally being in a forklift that they used to leave me hung in the air for a while because they thought that was funny, to handling the returns department, to handling the, the ordering department, literally everything in the facility. Well, how did you know how to do all that stuff? I don't know. You they figured just it would, out? Yeah, they just would drop me in, and then I would make it more efficient, and they'd move me to the next place. So you, so you see solutions immediately, right at your fingertips. As you see the problem, you see the solution. I, I, the answer is yes, and I think also, for some reason, and I didn't really have a backing in it, that industry just called to me, supply chain. I had never known it, but it just worked for me, what's and all it's that very stuff, linear. What's that stuff have to do with this business known as Enteros? It's exactly what we do. What so are you talking about? So saw the gap as we became a global economy and the world became a global economy that everyone was offshoring and outsourcing and then that company would outsource and that company would outsource. And at the end of the day, we literally have no idea who we're buying things from and who has access to those things. And then the internet came along and cyber and now I'm digitally connected to everyone and everybody's going to the cloud. So we have no idea who has access to our brand, our intellectual property, our people, counterfeits, anything you can think about and nobody was covering that space from a technology solution. So launched this company 14 years ago to solve that problem. We were way too early, very Shark Tank-ish. 
technology wasn't where it is today. So we started as a consulting company, um, watched the market pivot. Last year, we successfully pivoted to a from a services company. By Q4, we were a technology company. Kleiner Perkins came in, and we're off to the races. Well, it was, it was a, some sort of a meeting that you were at where somebody had been with you six or seven years earlier and said something to you. What was that all about? So I was at a, a sales meeting, actually, and um, it was a multiple hundred million dollar company. And the gentleman looked at me and said, I'm going to give you some feedback and it's not going to sound right, but I can't believe you're still here. And I just kind of looked and I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And he told all of his peers in the meeting and those on the phone that he had met me six or seven years ago and that I was still saying the same thing and fighting the same fight. And I was so far ahead of my market six or seven years ago that he couldn't believe I made it. But by seeing me now, he knew we were on the right path and he was very proud. So he was pointing out that you were envisioning and a visionary and yet tenacious at the same time. Absolutely. And that first job that you had when you were 21 out of college, the first full-time job, that was, you, you saw holes, you saw how things weren't interconnected. So you're a master connector of the dots, aren't you? So absolutely that. The other thing when I came out of school was right when PCs were taking over for mainframes and corporations. So I also became the first IT department in that organization. And so matching the connectivity with the technology and then helping them offshore manufacturing, it set me up for future success. How, how large or how small was the company when you joined it? Well, the distribution center, so headquarters was outside mm -hmm. of New York. The mm -hmm. distribution center, I want to say, probably had a little over 100 people. But didn't it frighten you going to work for a company? You're just out of college. There's 100 people there. And who are you? And how are you going to really make a difference? So I don't think I ever took on that attitude because I just break through the barriers, if you will. I just don't see them. I will tell you I found myself in a situation where I was managing at 22. I was managing people that were in their 50s and 60s that were looking at me saying, who are you? But then you just keep going and they just come along. So you doing this for are you doing this for the money or what, what what's motivating you what's what's driving you yeah, It's a really great question and I think I think the first thing that's driving me and back to the question that was just asked it's really important to me to be an example of where women can take businesses and to have a global economic impact there's not enough of us that are growing large businesses and so that's the first thing the second thing, and to bring other women with me, the second thing is to show the world that this can be solved via technology. It's really important. So you, you have no fear of breaking through ceilings, breaking through barriers. In fact, that's really what turns you on is making a difference. If you're not making a difference, you're not being fulfilled. I, that's exactly right. And I also know that that's what attracted Kleiner Perkins. My first meeting with um, the investor, I literally walked in as an unknown and it was a 45 minute meeting. He canceled the meeting after me and spent an hour and a half with me just looking at the platform we were doing, talking about pricing. It was a phenomenal conversation. And seven months later, we had a very large investment. Well, in the venture capital industry, the, uh, you know, they're betting on the jockey. You know, they're not necessarily betting on the business plan because the business plan, they must really have believed in you personally. They think I'm a little passionate. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the website address of this organization known as uh, Enteros? Enteros.net. How do you spell that? I-N as in Nancy, T-E-R-O-S as in Sam.net. Let me have that one more time. Enteros, I-N-T-E-R-O-S.net. We've been speaking with Jennifer, Bis how do you pronounce your last name? Bisegli. Bisegli, who's the uh, CEO of Enteros here on Executive Leaders Radio, as well as we've had the opportunity of speaking with Matt Coos, founder and CEO of Cumulus, uh, Paul Gianfrido, president and CEO of Mental Health America, Andy Gilman, president and CEO of Comcore Consulting Group, and again, most recently, Jennifer, how do you pronounce your last name? Visegli. Who is the uh, CEO of Enteros. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, including Joe Applebaum, Potomac Companies, John Yetman, Association for Enterprise Growth, Brian Chandler, Pretori Law, and Daniel Patterson, Brunch Digital, for giving me a hand structuring the questions Hope you're providing our listening audience an educational and entertaining show. I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a radio show. Brian, what is the website address for Pretori Law where we're, where we're hosting today? Uh, PretoriLaw.com. That's P-R-O-T-O-R-A-E-L-A-W.com. And thank you for joining us today, and have a nice day. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Executive Leaders Radio, the region's premier radio show highlighting local executive leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the show here on 1500 AM. You can learn more about Executive Leaders Radio by visiting executiveleadersradio.com or tune in next time right here on 1500 AM. That's executiveleadersradio.com.